0: This is The Atlantis Stone by me, Nick Thacker. Read by my friend with a much better voice, Mike Vendetti. Chapter 16, 6.59 p.m. Atlantic Ocean. The main laboratory inside Whittenfield's large personal jet had been rigged as a communications facility. Wittenfield couldn't accompany Bryce and his team in person for the more physical portions of the mission. But he wasn't about to be left out entirely. He would contribute from the airborne lab where he now sat at a small desk configuring the numerous modems, cables, and wires that would serve as his command post for the next few days. The Thompson brothers were asleep in the passenger compartment, reclined in their leather seats and surrounded by duffel bags full of equipment. The remainder of the group was spread out throughout the plane's cabin. Bryce Reynolds was planning and organizing his thoughts on a laptop while Cole Reed napped in a seat across the aisle from Bryce. The two new team members sat toward the front of the cabin, keeping mostly to themselves. Sean Bartlinski and Gary McGowan were soldiers for hire with connections in Whittenfield's organization. And though they had been cordial enough when they joined the team at the airport, it was obvious they weren't here to make new friends. Bryce hoped they were able to follow orders, but judging by their smirks and snide comments, he figured they'd be more of a nuisance than an asset. Rice just prayed they'd know which direction to fire when the shooting started. The plane was heading toward Barcelona, Spain, for a refuel, then a short hop over the Mediterranean to Cairo. Jeff Thompson's jury rig tracking device had worked wonders, allowing them to track Villasek and his men all the way to Egypt. The only problem was that they weren't sure how much battery life was left in the phone, or if Agent Becca had figured out that he'd been duped and led them on a wild goose chase around the globe. Cole had been up for hours after their briefing, reading through the pages of the journal. He painstakingly copied down the text written in invisible ink into another notebook. And when he'd finished the entire journal, Whittenfield had come in with an entire box of his father's journals and notebooks. Cole spent the rest of the night and into the following morning translating those. Most of the journals were empty, just research regarding the projects and assignments Whittenfield Senior worked on over the course of his long career. Most of it had nothing to do with the strange substance that had consumed his son's professional life, but it made for fascinating reading nonetheless. Cole read about defense contracts and weapons developments that had never seen the light of day, mostly due to a lack of financial backing. In some cases, however, Projects had been fully funded, and the research and consequent prototyping had been completely successful. These projects, about 40% by Cole's best guess, were simply abandoned for economic or political reasons. The end of a major war, change in administration, etc., seemed like most of Whittenfield Senior's work was groundbreaking and cutting edge for its time, but it had, for the most part, been all but forgotten. Some of the journals, however, did have references to the mysterious substance. Apparently, it was a crystalline solid, like a piece of quartz. The almost perfectly translucent crystal mineral that was found inside geodes and used for things like jewelry and industrial and commercial products. One journal dated April, 1946, described the mineral. The Substance appears similar in structure to the common mineral quartz. Is solid, sharp at the edges. In the presence of natural and artificial light, the rock emits an almost bluish glow, faint but bright enough to be noticeable. It is this particular element of the mineral, though we do not at this time know what it is, that we believe to be the variable that causes the mysterious properties we've experienced. As well, it is through the extraction and attempted duplication of this substance that we have continued the study of the mineral's properties. Last month, Dr. Enko Vilasek stole the original artifact and disappeared with it. Half of my team left with him, and I am now struggling to recreate my experiments with a duplicate substance, though the properties are not nearly as powerful. The earlier journals had no mention of the rock, nor did they have any bluish hidden ink at all. Cole explained this to Wittenfield, who had a theory as to why. Well, assuming your ability to read this invisible ink is related to whatever sort of tests and injections Villasek subjected you to, I'd wager that it's also related to whatever they found within that rock. Remember, Villasek also has had a duplicate, synthetic copy of the original, and he's had the original in his possession for many years. So whatever it is that causes this rock to emanate the bluish glow is also what your father extracted from the original mineral, Cole asked. Exactly. And he somehow managed to transfer that property into a liquid, his invisible ink. Except that instead of being visible in light, he made the ink only visible in the presence of the mineral. Knowing that whoever would find the crystal later would want to know more about it and therefore search his journals. He made sure that they would have to have both the journals and the rock in their possession. Or in their bloodstream, Cole added sarcastically. Rice chimed in as the plane lurched through some turbulence. So we know that Vilicek's on his way to Egypt, but do we know where exactly? No, Whittenfield said, but I ran another trace a moment ago. Jeff's phone is still transmitting, and their movement has all but stopped somewhere just south of Cairo. I don't know for sure, but I'd bet they're heading to the Great Pyramid of Giza. Actually, that makes sense, Cole said, reaching into the box at his feet and pulling out one of the journals. Found something here that I couldn't figure out, and there's no mention of it anywhere else. He thumbed through the book, finally stopping near the back. At first, I thought it was just a random doodle or something unrelated to the crystal. But the more I thought about it, I realized he wouldn't have used the invisible ink to write a doodle. Wittenfield and Bryce leaned in, looking at the page Cole had opened to. Looks like Washington, D.C., Bryce said after a moment, but just the streets and intersections. See, here's where Wittenfield's research would be. I think you're right, Bryce, Whittenfield said. I can make out Pennsylvania Avenue, this main line running through the center of the image. And there's where the capitol building in the White House would be. But what's the triangle around it, Cole asked. And the circled area at the bottom. It does resemble a pyramid, Whittenfield said. Could the Giza pyramid be what my father was intending to get across? but why would he put a map of an American city behind it? Woodenfield looked for a moment at the bluish writing on the page, then ran his thumbnail across the bottom edge. There was a small, almost imperceptible fold that subtly interrupted the pattern. He gently flattened out the fold, revealing a string of words directly below the drawing where the bottom of the pyramid would be. Potomac River location of original lower room the original bryce asked is that the original piece of the rock he's referring to Could be. maybe his team found the crystal at the bottom of the river the reference to the lower room fits the description of one of the geese's inter maybe that's where villasek's headed now thinking that's where the pure crystal the original Original substance is hidden there. Whittenfield stressed the first original, as if implying that the original material Villasek and Whittenfield Sr. had been in contact with was a small part of a larger crystal. So, Bryce said, we go to Giza, follow Villasek into the Great Pyramid, and figure out what he's looking for. We get it before Villasek does and get out alive all while dodging the Egyptian authorities and a couple of thousand tourists. Price's assessment didn't seem overly optimistic. Exactly, Woodenfield said. Like I said, we have our work cut out for us. Chapter 17, no one knows exactly who built the Great Pyramid at Giza, or for that matter, how they accomplished the monstrous task. The assumption of course is that the ancient Egyptians, most likely using tens of thousands of slaves, laid each rock in place one at a time until the massive structure was completed. They say the Egyptians were building a tomb for their ruler, the Pharaoh that would serve as both a final resting place as well as an embarkation point from which the pharaoh would rise to the heavens and take over as the god Osiris. While the pyramids certainly did serve as graves for the highest Egyptian rulers and leaders, pharaohs included, how an ancient civilization designed and constructed them is still a mystery. Modern research and archeological evidence suggests that humans alone unaided would have an absolutely terrible time trying to lift and fit each block into place. The Great Pyramid, while considered finished, looks rather unfinished. This is due to the lack of an apex. The top of the pyramid seems to be cut off about 30 feet below the natural pinnacle. Scholars and Egyptologists have speculated that this capstone, the last piece of the pyramid to be placed would have been about 30 feet across and an exact scale replica of its mother pyramid below it. No one has heard or read any account of a capstone ever being completed, placed on top, or even seen for that matter. We're left to speculation as to the original builder's intent. Was it meant to go without a capstone? or was it simply scavenged and looted during one of the many raids of the Giza Pyramid complex over the millennia? Finished during the Fourth Dynasty in 2560 BC, the Great Pyramid, or the Pyramid of Cheops, was built in a 20-year period of Pharaoh Khufu's reign and consists of about 2.3 million blocks, the largest weighing in at over 80 tons, 160,000 pounds. These blocks were carried or dragged from Aswan about 500 miles away over the sand. To put the building of the structure into perspective, based on renowned Egyptologist Sir Flanders Petrie's measurements, there would need to have been about five blocks put into place every minute of every hour of every day for 20 years. Further, the foundation of the entire complex is set on a 13-acre square bedrock that is almost perfectly level, varying in height no more than half an inch throughout. This is a feat of engineering that we still cannot accomplish today, even aided with advanced surveying technology. Most of the outer casing, a white protective shell, was cracked and broken during a devastating earthquake and subsequently taken away. Remaining is the interior or core of the pyramid The original entrance to the building is almost 60 feet up from ground level and marks the beginning of the descending passage. It is said that this original entrance was blocked by a huge rock that was so delicately and perfectly balanced it could be moved with the touch of a single finger. The main chambers are the king's and queen's chambers located toward the center of the pyramid These two chambers are reached via the ascending passage, which branches off of the descending passage and continues upward for 129 feet. A grand gallery marks the upper section of the ascending passage with a 28 foot tall ceiling leading to the king's chamber, numerous shafts, and what are thought to be circulation vents pockmarked the internal walls, and to this day there are passageways yet unexplored and undiscovered. The builders showed impeccable craftsmanship and attention to detail with the pyramid's construction, aligning the entire building to true north and the stars, with an exceptionally small margin error. Historians have compared the accuracy to that of a modern-day optometrist. Measuring precisely the same distance on all four of its bases, the pyramid is thought to only be slightly off due to the erosion and Earth's movement over thousands of years. About 350 feet diagonally down, below the base of the pyramid, lies the lower chamber, or subterranean chamber, at the lower end of the descending passage. This is believed to have been another burial chamber, but was left unfinished A pathway branches off horizontally from this chamber, heads south for about 53 feet, and ends up at a wall. A deep pit rests in the center of this chamber, thought to be about 60 feet deep, filled to about 15 feet deep with rubble and broken rock. These two strange anomalies discount the theory that this chamber was designed as another crypt. Most other Egyptian pyramids were designed with this main subterranean area as the official main chamber, but the burial chamber was always designed to be at least along the path, the final resting place of the king. If one or both of these uncommon passageways leading out of the underground burial chamber were meant to lead to another room or a pathway, then this could not have served as a burial chamber. Instead, the lower room would have been meant for something else, some secret or item meant to be protected by not only the massive structure above it, but the tomb of the dead king himself. Was the room unfinished on purpose, meant to deceive and misguide the explorers to come in the following centuries? Or was the lower chamber built to house something besides a tomb altogether?